is still in chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Last week, we opened up the book of Genesis. Uh, We talked about authorship and genre. Uh, We saw the creation of the cosmos overall, and then we saw the Holy Spirit begin to do the work of the Father on the earth. We saw the plurality of God presented in these verses. We saw the omnipresence of the Spirit on the earth. We saw the creative voice of God, the fact that God speaks and things come into existence, even the beginning of space and time, and that when God commands, his creation moves. And we will continue to see these things as we move through the creation story. Last week, we got to the first day of creation, and today we continue after the first evening and morning. Before we jump into the text this morning, let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for everything you do. I want to thank you for condescending to us, both in Christ and as we sit here this morning. You dwell with us in the presence of your Holy Spirit. We don't deserve that. So we thank you for being here with us, for having communion with us, for fellowshipping with us, for teaching us. Lord, I ask you to guide us as we walk through your word. These verses here, not using Genesis chapter 1 or appropriating it in a way where we can try to defend our own cosmological views or try to use Genesis chapter 1 as a launching board to to argue against scientific study, but to read the text for what it is so that we might glean for our lives what you meant for us to glean from this text. I'm not trying to appropriate it for any other purpose. Through the proclamation of your word, we ask that you transform us by the renewing of our minds. We pray that our hearts are conformed to that of Jesus Christ. Now by reading this text, we learn something about who you are, because we know that who you are is reflected in in every part of your creation. That your invisible attributes can be clearly seen through what has been made from the beginning. God, we love you and thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'll begin reading in verse 1. And let me just read all the way through verse 13 here, and then we will begin walking through at verse 6. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, 
and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. He called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. And then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their own kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. I notice here, just from the outset, God really loves to name the work of his hands. And I didn't mention this last week, right? God named evening and morning. When we got to the first day, he separated darkness from light. He he called the, the light day. He called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. He named it. And moving through the text to say, we see, we see God performing a work of his hands, uh, creating, commanding his creation. And at each juncture, he takes the time to, to name what he is doing. And when we get to the fact that Adam is created in the image of God, that mankind is created in the image of God and given the instruction, name the animals, I think there are some profound implications there that humanity is to reflect God and his glory as the Imago Dei. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So last week we saw that This planet that God chose for himself, called the Earth, it was a water-type planet, must have had a thick atmosphere, and and here God commands the waters through the presence of the Holy Spirit, which moves over the surface of of all the waters, right through the omnipresence of his his Spirit, God, God commands the waters. He commands the waters to separate from one another leaving an expanse, and there is an expanse now between the waters above and the waters below. Like last week, we saw a certain vagueness in the text, which can be difficult to understand because we want minutia in creation. We want the text to be very clear about exactly what's going on. So our Western brains want to know how, right? How? God, give me every single detail, but Moses doesn't provide every single detail. He's not working with a a 21st century American mind. His mind is very much Eastern. His mind is very much in 1445 B.C. His mind is 
brilliant, okay? Moses, adopted by the royal family in Egypt, was trained in the ancient Near East myths and in Egyptian mythology. It is no wonder why the style of the creation story here and of Genesis 1 through 11 reflect the ancient Near East myths. This is the style Moses was trained in. But as we move through the text today, we're going to see that Moses is doing something quite quite different from what the ancient Near East myths were doing because the ancient Near East myths, they did try to explain exactly how everything came to be. How did humanity come to be? Why did humanity come to be? Well, the gods needed servants, and they needed people to, to praise them to make them powerful, is what the ancient Near East texts would say. When Moses grew up learning, but that is not what Moses is doing here. What Moses is doing here is very countercultural. What Moses is doing here is it's in the same style as ancient Near East myths, but he's doing kind of an opposite thing. And so I think Genesis 1 through 11 also fall into the, the category of satire, which makes me really happy as a partial philosopher, right? Because I know that the very first satire was created by the people of God. In response to what was being taught in the day, and when we gather together on Sunday mornings, especially walking through the book of Genesis, I, I think it's cool that we are, we are basically renegades and revolutionaries and rebels because we, we choose to walk through the book of Genesis and we choose to walk through the Bible, which is inherently countercultural from the beginning, from the very first book. And we'll see more about what Moses is doing in light of the ancient Near East text and in light of his Egyptian education as we move through the text, not just today, but throughout the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. God said, let there be an expanse. We do not know, because the text is vague here, right? We do not know whether the whole thing was liquid water. Uh, There are some early believers, early Semitic peoples, uh, who, who thought there was this firmament that was placed, and there was liquid water above and liquid water below. And the text doesn't tell us one way or the other what things were like. There are some Christians today who believe that it was liquid water above and liquid water below, and there was this, this firmament, this expanse, heaven, right in the middle of the two waters and that it did not rain a single drop because that was impossible because of the firmament until until Noah. But the text does not tell us one way or the other whether the waters that are above are are equivalent to what we call clouds today and if the atmosphere met the liquid water of the earth and God took this moment and separated those the text doesn't tell us one way or the other it is Vague, And as, as much as I want the text to be very exact on this, I want to answer the question, how? Give me the minutia of creation. The text does not do this. And I think Moses is, is very purposeful here. I think his purpose in writing Genesis chapters 1 through 11, particularly here Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, I think his purpose in writing it is very different often than our, our purpose of reading it is because we read to find out the how, 
How did God create the world? Let's go to Genesis 1. Let's see the how. But I think here Moses is answering the question, why? And I think he's answering the question about who? Because there is some confusion in his day. And I think there's a lot of confusion in our day as well. So Moses is clear. God said, let there be an expanse. Now, verse 6 here differs from what we read previously, because when God said, let there be light, the text just says there was light. It doesn't tell us how there was light, whether it's being revealed from the cosmos or whether it's being created right there on planet Earth. The text doesn't tell us, but the text does tell us uh, some of the detail here concerning the expanse. Because in verse 7, he says, God made the expanse. This expanse was something that wasn't there before. The waters above and the waters below, they met together. There was no expanse. And so we know that God made this expanse. And, and he separated the waters which are below from the, from the waters which are above the expanse. And it was so. So God created here on the earth an expanse, which is interesting language to me god made this because the expanse is actually it's, it's actually a, a void right he's separating two things out so that there's nothing there there's a vacuum there now but he he made that vacuum he created that vacuum where there was no vacuum before space where there was not space before and the waters above were separated from the waters below and God called the expanse heaven. Here we see God's, God's character at play, right? Not only does he observe his work at the end of each day, and like we're going to see today, right in the middle of the day, and call it good, recognize it as good, but he, he takes the time to name the work of his hands. And here he takes the time to, to name something uh, which seems as insignificant to us as empty space, right? God takes the time to name that. And he calls this expanse, this vacuum that he created between the waters above and the waters below, he calls it heaven. Uh, the Hebrew word for heaven here is shemayim, and heaven could be the sky, it could be the cosmos, or it could be the, what from our perception is the dwelling place of God. Those are the three ways this word heaven is used in Hebrew literature in the Old Testament. But God called the expanse heaven. And again, this term is inexact because it could be one of three things, right? It could be what we call the sky. It could be the cosmos, outer space, or it could be the, the dwelling place of God. And so we have to use context clues. Anytime we see this word heaven in the Old Testament and in the New as well, it's the same both ways. We, we have to use context clues to figure out what exactly is being referred to. Well, here, the thing being referred to is this expanse between the waters on the earth. So it is not the dwelling place of God, as we think from our perception. It is, it is not outer space, as we would think from our perception, and so in this case, this is the sky. And some English translations may say sky. And that would not be a mistranslation. That would be accurate. And there was evening, 
and there was morning, a second day. You look carefully at the, at the Hebrew text and the language being used there, just like we saw last week that uh, what we call the first day of creation didn't have a definite article attached to it. This day also does not have a definite article attached to it. So to read the text is, there's evening and morning one day, and there was evening and morning a second day or another day. That is the correct way to read this text. Remember, Moses' purpose here is not to give us the minutia of creation. His purpose here in this text is not to say these are six literal consecutive days. I believe they are, right? But that's not Moses' purpose here. No, he's, he's doing something different. And to notice that this is one day, a second day, a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day is going to become very important when we get to day numbers six and seven, because both of those days have a definite article attached to them, such that they should read the sixth day and the seventh day. So we should be very careful not to use Genesis 1 for, for a purpose that it was not written to achieve, right? Now, if we want to think about the chronology of creation and whether or not the six days of creation were literal 24-hour consecutive periods of time. We don't go to Genesis 1. And if we want to know what Moses thought about this, we can find the answer in Mosaic literature, particularly Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, in the Ten Commandments, right? Where Moses is telling people, take a Sabbath rest. Here's why you take a Sabbath rest. Because in six days... God created the heavens and the earth and the waters and the land and every, every manner of life that teems within those things. And so we still don't know necessarily about the cosmos, even though the cosmos could be in view, but we know for sure on earth because of other Mosaic literature that when Moses is writing here, Moses is making the assumption that from the sky to the water to the land to the birds to the sea creatures to the beasts and slithering things and crawling things and people on the earth. All of those things happened within the confines of six days. In six days, God did this work. But we don't receive that information from Genesis chapter 1. And we want to read Genesis chapter 1 for what it is and for the purpose it was intended by Moses because Moses, he's educated, right? And he uses this language very intentionally. One day. A second day. And we'll see what that purpose is as we move through the rest of this chapter in the coming weeks. Verse 9. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens, the sky, be gathered into one place. And let dry land appear. Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. Again, we see that God has created this landmass called the earth. And now he is commanding the elements of the earth to, to move and to shift. He is forming the earth that was formerly 
void. And he commands the waters that are below the sky, this expanse, to gather into one place. And he commands dry land to appear up from under the vast ocean of the earth. And it was so. The elements of the earth obey God. God commands and and creation obeys. Otherwise, inanimate matter obeys and it moves and it shifts according to the command of God. And God called the dry land earth. This Hebrew word earth is the word eretz. And eretz simply means mass of land, dirt. It could refer to the boundaries of a nation. It can refer to someone's property. It can refer to the earth as a whole, what we call planet earth, but this word in the Hebrew language is not a proper name. It refers to a designated piece of land, a designated piece of dirt. And God calls the dry land earth. Again, naming his creation, the work of his hands. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. Again, naming his creation, naming the work of his hands. And God saw that it was good. Again, observing his creation, the work of his hands, recognizing it as good, glorying in the work of his hands, enjoying the work of his hands. And not only does he enjoy the pure work of his hands, but when we read the next verse, we see he enjoys the, quite literally, the fruit of his labor. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And notice this. God is creating something else that is new. So he created the expanse. And now he is creating life. Plant life. But life. He commands the dirt of the earth, right? The landmass. He says, you, landmass, bring forth vegetation. And the earth, the landmass, obeys God. It was so But look at this wording here. Again, this is more inexact than I would like it to be because I'm 21st century Western American. My brain wants to know the minutia of these things. But Moses is vague, and I think he is vague on purpose. It's not his point to tell us exactly how here in Genesis 1. But we see something about the plants and the trees The plants yield seed. God creates them. 
with the, the natural ability and tendency to reproduce. That you'll see in fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. Again, the ability to reproduce. A God doesn't continue to bring about life miraculously. He creates life with the ability to reproduce. And this is something we refer to as the providence of God. It is the work of God. And God has built this into his creation such that every natural phenomenon we see is instituted by God in the order of creation. So the things carry forth as he intends them to carry forth. This is the providence of God represented here in Genesis chapter 1. And this is a wonderful thing. Let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. How many times have you prayed for God to change the circumstances of your life? And how many times do we pray, God, why why must I endure this? Whatever it is, right? Why must I suffer as I have? Why must there be tribulation in my life? God, why don't you just change things? And the answer should be plain from the beginning, at least from a theological standpoint. I'm not talking about our feelings, because sometimes our feelings get the best of us, right? God, why? No matter what our theology is, okay? Because the flesh is weak. But theologically speaking, the answer is it's here, and it's, and it's so clear, and the answer is God's providence. And if God created the world to operate a certain way, God would deny his plan for creation. He would deny his order of doing things. He would effectively deny himself if he were to just change it, right? And this, this, is, why, this is why theologies like the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel are so dangerous in our time. This is why... That's why Roman Catholicism, the theology there, especially when it comes to the soteriological view that we must work for our salvation, right? That's why it's so dangerous in our time. Because God has put certain systems in place. And if we're health and wealth people, we think that giving of our finances or praying enough is going to change the order of things that God has put in place. We say, God, if you would just rip over, rip open the heavens and like show your face through the clouds or whatever and, and just reveal your miraculous wrath against all the people who don't believe in you. And God, if you're real, like you better, you better show up now. But that would completely go against the providence of God. Now, God does do what we would call miraculous things, things that, things that maybe we can't explain, a virgin birth, Jesus Christ, right? But he doesn't, I think, break the laws of physics that he has put in place to do that. I think he uses the laws that he has put in place. I think he uses the natural order of things. When Jesus came through Mary, he probably looked like her, right? Probably. I don't know for sure. I didn't see him. Okay. So say probably. I also don't really know what Mary looked like. I wouldn't recognize her in a crowd. But if we consider the providence of God, and we know why sometimes God doesn't 
answer our mystic prayers for some miracle to happen in the way we want him to, right? Why Christians don't suddenly get rich when they become Christians, we know, is because of the providence of God. God doesn't operate that way. He hasn't operated that way from the beginning. He put a system in place, and he does not deny himself. And I am glad, because that means he is trustworthy and consistent from day to day. We don't have to worry about God God changing And suddenly the elect people of God become the unelect people of God. We don't have to worry about that, right? Because of the providence of God, the doctrine of his providence, which is wonderful. It is beautiful. But notice this too. These vegetables and these trees bearing fruit, they reproduced according to their kind, by God's design, which means God is also a God of order. And providence and order together, that's a, that's a powerful combination, right? One, I think, necessitates the other. I also think they work together. God is a God of providence and of order. We don't have to worry about planting an apple tree and getting oranges. Wheat always produces wheat when the seeds are planted. They don't produce something else, something different, such that the world is chaotic. And if you have read ancient Near East literature, ancient Near East myths that Moses would have grown up with, the myths of of Egypt and the creation, all of those ancient Near East myths have something in common. They begin with chaos. They begin with chaos, and in order to explain how the world is no longer chaotic and there seems to be some kind of order of things, they have invented gods who somehow came to be in the midst of chaos, and they looked around and saw all this chaos and decided to create lesser gods and humanity in order to limit the chaos around them. And there's this constant battle between chaos and and order, chaos and order, chaos and order. And that is something we see very conspicuously absent in Moses' account of creation. He's speaking against his culture. He's satirizing the, the genre of the day, the popular genre. People would have picked this up and read it, even though he was writing it just to Israel. They're in the wilderness. I don't know who has the opportunity to just pick it up and read it. But if people heard, oh, there's another story out. We need to pick that up and read it. We need to pay attention. We need to listen. You wonder why, how everybody knew about the God of Israel by the time they got to Canaan? I I think the story traveled because Moses wrote in a popular genre of the time. And they picked it up and started reading. And where's chaos? Where's Talmud? Where are these elements that are otherwise present in all the, all, all the, all the myths that we have read? Where, where is this? It's, it's absent because Moses is combating falsehoods. He's using a popular genre of his day to say, hey, you got it wrong, and I'm going to tell you that you got it wrong. Let me tell you about the only true creator, God. There was not chaos There was nothing except for God. And when he spoke, things came to be, and he commanded his creation from the beginning. There was providence, and there was order. 
let me speak into your misunderstanding. I grew up with the same stories you did. Let me, let me tell you how they're wrong. And let me tell you about the God who chose the Hebrew nation, delivered them from Egypt. Let me tell you about this God. So this is one of Moses' purpose, right? Satirizing the popular literature of the day to tell people truth and history. The earth indeed brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And still today, I mean, that was a long time ago, right? But still today, I, I seem to see farmers and ranchers counting on the fact that what they plant is actually going to come out of the ground. And that their animals, when their animals have babies, they're going to look like their moms and dads and gain just as much weight so we can put them on the table later, right? And people count on that. People count on consistency and, re- and reality. And people count on the order that God provided at the beginning. And I'm glad he provided that order. Because still, in the world today, as chaotic as thing, things might seem from our perspective, God is still sovereign. God still has all providence. And God is still a God of order. And there is no battle between order and chaos. God commands his creation. God orders history. God orders the steps of our lives. God prepares work for us to do beforehand. It is God who does this. And no one is in control other than God. So here we also see God's sovereignty and God's sovereignty is, must be applied to all things, or he is not sovereign. And that includes salvation and the circumstances of our lives from day to day, and the suffering we go through, and our ability to have children, and our ability to parent well, and, and the friends that we have, and, and the people that we meet, and, and the interests we have, and our involved in the things we feel like we have to do in our in our passions and our spiritual gifts all under the sovereignty of God natural disasters the way that the earth revolves around the sun and rotates on its axis the gravitational pull of the moon The clouds in the sky, the cold and the breeze. The cultures of the earth and the kingdoms of the earth. All designed by God, placed by God for God's purpose under God's sovereignty. No ancient Near East myth is saying this about any God. But Moses is saying it about thee one true creator, God, who exists in plurality. Moses is speaking truth into a world of mythology. That's why I love Genesis chapter 1 so much here. 
it was so. God saw that it was good, again, observing his creation, the work of his hands, bringing order not from chaos, but bringing order from nothing other than himself, right? And, and he observes it and he recognizes it as good. So far, in the order of creation, there is nothing that is not good. Here in Genesis chapter 1, God is observing all the work of his hands, and it is good. It is good. It is good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. The same inexact language that we saw on one day and another day or a second day, we see here with a third day. And again, I think Moses is being very intentional about this. And thus, we have the first half of creation week. We have made it to this evening and morning, a third day. And next week, we will see the next three days of creation. And we'll see the poetic structure of Genesis chapter 1. We'll see parallelisms. And we'll see again how Moses is speaking into, into the mythologies of his day by using what is a popular genre to satirize the types of stories that are being told and proclaim to the people, to the world, who the one true God is. And we are still proclaiming to the world who this one true God is. Amen. Amen.